This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Energy Sense, the IHS Market Podcast, where we discuss all things at the intersection of energy and finance. As always, I've got Hill Vaden with me today. How are you doing, Hill? I'm doing well, Brian. How are you? Uh, I'm pretty good. So on our last podcast, we talked about the, at that point, it was the upcoming Super Bowl and I, me having nothing to watch and, and that this is just something I was going to do. And, <laughs> and okay, so a couple of things that came out of that, totally non-event. Worst, I think it was the lowest watched Super Bowl, I think is what the stats came out afterwards. And um, the whole thing about these advertisers pulling out, not true. Yes. I saw Budweiser ads, so I'm not quite sure. And then Pepsi said it wasn't, but weren't, didn't they do the whole halftime show? Because wasn't that the a Pepsi emblem? Show. Yeah, like yeah. the whole Pepsi. So I'm not quite sure what that was all about. It was clear, clearly um, misleading from their statements leading into the Super Bowl about how they weren't going to be investing all the money into the marketing. Maybe the marketing dollars spent was slightly less, but I would say the brands were still very much represented at the Super Bowl. Yeah, I'd agree. And just drop the name of Pepsi and Budweiser in our podcast without them spending any money with us either. So so True. I think they got the, the publicity that they were looking for. It, it, it seems to me almost like, remember the George Costanza episode of Seinfeld where he did the opposite of what he thought he was supposed to do for the entire yeah. episode? Yeah. It was almost, we are going to not advertise. We are going to advertise by not advertising. Not advertising. So, so that hey. was, I, I went to bed at halftime. So, so I, I thought oh, the, yeah. I was so disappointed in, in the game that I turned it off, got in yeah. bed and read. Well, and that's, that's, a, what's, that's a game you can only play once once or twice, though, the advertised by not advertised. <laughs> Very true. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I just thought it was, uh, I don't know. I feel like if you're going to put out something and really make the stance that this is what you're committing to, they didn't even try to make it look like they were an advertising. It was pretty, pretty much out there. So, yeah. anyways, so there was you know, that angle to it. Reminds me, it reminds me of noodling. You guys know what noodling is? With the catfish. Yes, that's right. So this yes. is a, a fishing technique or, or I don't know, some game that where you go in a river and you look for catfish holes that you cannot see by putting your finger in the murky water and your wiggling arm. your finger or your, well, your arm, but you wiggle your finger, that's the noodle, until the fish bites your finger and then you grab the fish who has bitten your finger and pull it out. And, and they have some people with amazingly large catfish. And, of course, uh, th th my first thing upon hearing that, my question was, is this a game you can play more than 10 times? Right. Uh, because I don't see. Well, there's a uh, there's I don't a whole you can. But well, I, I guess first. So that's the voice of Raul LeBlanc, who we, we, oh, yes. we, we failed to introduce. But both Raul LeBlanc and, and Cormac Gilligan, who, who are on the uh, podcast today. But th there's a whole documentary uh, on noodling. Which is one of these great, there's two kind of great, what I would call backwoods documentaries. One on noodling, where you see these guys who are literally sticking their arm into the mud and pulling out like a 15-pound catfish, sucking on their arm up to the elbow. 
And, and there's another one about, I'm going to lose it, but, but Jessica, I can't remember, the, the Dancing Outlaw is the name of the guy. And he's some meth addict in the backwoods of, I think, Kentucky, who's an incredible tap dancer. What? Um, yeah, so... I don't First know how of all, this relates what, to the what Super documentary Bowl. feed? Like, what is your? Are these your preferences that you? Are these documentaries that are being pushed to you based off your other viewing preferences? This is my. This is my number one question because I'm concerned about what you are watching. Uh, they're, they're probably based on his musical preferences. Okay, that's all I have to say. Uh, you know, hold on, I can make the link back to the Super Bowl, which is there's another documentary. That's the link. To called Going Broke, which is fabulous. It's on ESPN, which is about how all of these professional athletes, particularly football players, have managed their finances. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating, which gets us back to finance, which gets us a good kickoff for you to, to, to start this whole podcast thing. Well, you're, you're just going to have to start scripting us someday because yeah. you, you've, you've got this whole, this whole thing worked out. I like it. And you're right. First of all, that Growing Broke, documentary it is outstanding i i cry through most of it as well raul as a little side note i'm a, I'm a real sucker for these exploitation of young athletes and also young singers aka britney spears documentary that just came out so we'll get that one out there as well but yeah it's going broke strongly recommend for all those who haven't watched it um as i would strongly recommend actually any of the 30 for 30s as well in case in case you're interested but you're right okay we're actually here to talk about other things although so it sounds as though broke. So, so, so that, so that is the target of our Energy Sense podcast. Obviously, is to give ideas so you don't go broke. And uh, today, we're actually talking about something really interesting. We've got, as we mentioned, Raúl LeBlanc, who uh, many of you probably recognize the voice even before we gave the name, as he joins us on many occasions. And uh, he's the VP of Onshore US or U.S. Upstream Research here. And we have Cormac Gilligan with us as well, who is an associate director on the cleantech team that we have, that is a growing aspect of our IHS market coverage, obviously. And he has a specialty in solar, which is particularly interesting. So it sounds, I think, maybe to the listener who's not, who's not maybe reading between the lines here as to what are we possibly going to be talking about between Raul and Cormac. But um, it's really interesting because the way we've and some of the work that's been done here is there's been a lot of parallels that have been coming to the forefront with solar and shale in particular with the idea that they are both appearing as global disruptors and this concept of being global disruptors to their to their separate energy sectors but um so that's actually what we want to talk here about today about is this idea of shale and solar and where are they in their life cycle and how are they actually disrupting the global energy systems. So I guess that's probably where I'll start off. And I know Raul, you've looked at this quite a bit. So how about I punt it to you first? And where do you think, where are we in the shale disruptor to global oil at this point? Well, you know, one of the things to kick this off was I was asked, I don't know, about a year and a half, two years ago to give a talk at a, a conference on disruption and i was just the, the the one lone energy speaker right so it was it was pretty small but in the process of reviewing that i made a graph which was it showed the proportion of shale or shale as a proportion of global oil production and wind and solar as a proportion of global power production 
And uh, I just found it fascinating. The curves lay right on top of each other. I did not even have to torture the data. I'm not against torturing data, uh, but I didn't have to do it. They laid right on top of each other and showed both of them making severe inroads up to about, you know, 9% uh, of global supply. And that got me thinking about that. And and first of all, I would I would argue that the story of the modern era is the story of energy disruption. And if you look at it historically, that is what led to, frankly, the Industrial Revolution as, as the prime enabler. It led to population growth. It led to uh, all sorts of uh, spatial patterns. So uh, we're, we have another one of those in an ongoing series in which humans are able to marshal the forces of stored or other forms of energy, whether it's stored solar energy and oil or direct solar energy or water. And, and it's, it's fascinating history. So I look at this and I start to say to myself, okay, let's think about this step back for a second and think about disruption in general. We hear so much about this, right? I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's trendy when every clickbait or every article has clickbait at the bottom that says these two sisters are disrupting a, a $45 billion industry or, or, you know, this, this guy in his, in, in his garage is ready to disrupt the multi-billion dollar industry here. So I find it interesting, and I'm looking at this, and I'm saying Shale went through a phase where it was an emerging technology. That emerging technology got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, and we had a large resource, which took on, frankly, a very entrenched, relatively slow-growing, mature market, and started to gain market share. And at some point, the investors started to say, well, two things happened. Number one was, and this was critical, shale was big enough that it actually disrupted the price of the commodity and destabilized the commodity, not just once, but two or three times. That was really important because it undermined its own success. Okay, If we still lived in a world where ore was $100, I have no doubt that shale would still be going strong. But in doing so, it also led people to start to question the returns. And that's where we are right now is the world disbelieves in the shale. It's gone through that process. And let me just say here uh, while I'm on the, uh, on the mic, to me, when I think about not whether it's, it's solar or shale or whatever, I think about disruptive technologies and I see a bit of a pattern going on here, right? Which is early stage days are characterized by growth, growth, growth. And eventually, if it's not profitable, investors eventually start to say, I see you can grow. I believe you can grow. But is it valueless growth? And I actually think, you know, here's an industry that had an emerging technology. It started to grow. It continued getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It said it was disruptive. It was revolutionary. It was going to change everything. And eventually people said, I think your growth costs too much and you're not making enough money. You know, and the industry I'm talking to, or the company I'm talking about actually is Uber. And so I view this as a bit of that chasm. If you think back to kind of business school, that chasm between immature growth phase and making money phase. And, and that's definitely where shale is. I'll leave it to Cormac and others to talk about where they think kind of kind of strollers and why it might be different or the same. 
Yeah, let's, you know, so, so if uh, I think Roll sets us up there that, that we grew from less than 1% to 9 or 10% or 8 or 9%, uh, you know, on a, you know, correlated basis in a sense between these uh, two technologies, three with wind, wh where does solar sit relative to, to the world that Raul just described with shale? And I want to come back to the Uber thing uh, as well, but let's first talk about solar. Yeah, thanks, uh, Hill. I, I think solar at this moment, I was just thinking about it part of this conversation, you know, the story of how it, it started off pretty small and it, it kind of where the history began was in some ways when the market kind of took off in 2010 in Europe and then it moved and expanded to the United States and then to Asia. And then certainly with Asia, we've seen, you know, really the the uh, huge scale now that we're starting to see is emanating from particularly there in terms of the manufacturing base. Um, of course, we're seeing a lot of the future technology and a lot of the cutting edge still standing within the United States um, and, and in other parts of Europe. But we're now, I think, at a stage where solar, obviously, the big story is how quickly the costs have declined. Um, that's certainly added to its quite very quickly like growing. In line with that, I think it's somewhere in the kind of the adolescent stage. It's kind of beyond that kind of that early growth spurt. And now it's reaching where almost most markets now are really starting to open up, starting to become comfortable with it. Um, it still remains true that the, the major markets of China, uh, the United States and India are still keeping their place in the top three. But we are starting to see that even being disrupted. For example, uh, last year, we actually saw Vietnam jump into to the top three solar markets. And if you'd asked that maybe a few years ago, most people would have thought you were pretty crazy. Um, that, was so in, is, that was in response to the tariffs on China, right? There was market drivers within Vietnam that, that drove it. China itself, you know, it, it continues to be, you know, in any one year in the last, let's say, five to maybe 10 years, it continues to be about a third of solar installations globally. So it is a huge, important market, not only in terms of manufacturing base, but also in terms of active installations. But they are certainly exporting that, that technology and that know-how into neighboring countries. And these countries are now obviously becoming very comfortable with it. And I think now to kind of what Raul is saying is that it, it is kind of part of the, there's a lot of buzz about it in line with a, obviously a lot of renewables for kind of the post pandemic build back better scenario and decarbonization energy transition movement that is obviously underway. But then I think also part of it, you know, one of the secrets of success for solar is its lead time for construction is quite short, maybe compared to even wind when we talk about, you know, everyone is very excited, obviously, about the opportunities for offshore wind. But certainly with solar, the, the speed that we saw solar even installed last year in the second half of the year, when, you know, even the team and ourselves were, you know, maybe let's say a little bit cautious at the beginning of a pandemic, the market came back very quickly. And actually, it turned out to be a growth year when maybe initially we're thinking it, it may not be. So I think the solar has been, A, the, the speed of which the cost declines have occurred, B, the amount of markets now that it is penetrating and expanding into. And this is not only, I think often people think of maybe either one of two things, I suppose, either A, large utility scale farms that they see when they drive by places, or B, in their neighborhoods, 
particularly in California, Hawaii, they'll see it on rooftops. But it is even transcending that. And I think we might touch on it a little bit later is the, the new bucket of customers that it's been opened up, be it the, the corporates, via corporate PPAs, power purchase agreements, or even being uh, installers or, or purchasing it themselves to maybe put it on their rooftops, so commercial and industrial. So in essence, I think across all what we would describe as all system types, solar is in that, I, I guess I would describe it like middle phase of that kind of high growth phase and where there's so, a lot of interest. So Cormac, if we think about shale, oil, shale, gas, for instance, I would say the technological code was cracked we're not really expecting some sort of technology advancement. Raul, correct me if I'm wrong on this, that's going to launch a, a second level of disruption. You know, that that's kind of in the past from the shale perspective. Do we think on a solar perspective that there's still, is there still a technological component that there could be improvement on or, or, or something that, you know, like once that's hit, that it's going to be another launch forward for solar? Is, or are we kind of past that already as well? So I suppose two things. The first point is that most people, when they look at the cost curve for, for solar photovoltaic, they look at the, the solar module, the panel, and they look at how quickly the costs have come down there. And it's safe to say today they're at extremely low levels or price points. And the, let's say the margins that the manufacturers are working on can be quite small because there's even there are shocks in the system so availability of polysilicon as the raw material that goes into them even other parts like glass last year for example there's a shock to the market now so far the suppliers have been able to ride through these shocks and they're only quarterly disturbances um, and they cause a lot of headache for developers and epcs and the engineering companies but typically it doesn't stop it some people in the industry would view that at the moment what's happening and that whereby there may be limits to the pace at which pricing has declined it's starting to maybe hit that point but one of the things they're doing is certainly we're moving towards larger uh, wafers so these are one of the next steps when you go to construct a, a module and this will allow larger modules um, so before we maybe had 250 watt we're now approaching 500 watt or 600 watt and on a dollar per watt basis, this is helping to help with the, the price point uh, and, the, and the economics and the levelized cost of electricity. Furthermore, there are things that are hitting the market in a big way and starting even in the United States. So they're starting to use bifacial module technology. Mm -hmm. And this simply means that you can earn or generate electricity on the underneath of the uh, solar panel or the module and earn extra uh, amounts of energy. And then the last point I would say is there is a, a hope and there are currently in, at laboratory stage or just coming out of universities, there are technologies called uh, perovskites, and there are a few startups, and there's a lot of interest in, in this technology. And typically it's a layer that you add on top of the, the modules to increase the efficiency of modules from let's say 20% or the high, low 20s to maybe 30% and beyond. But they, at the moment- Because they're just able to trap more rays? Is that- Yeah, able, able to trap and, and convert and more convert rays. More Okay. But the the timeline for kind of commercialization realistically is somewhere in the next five years. Um, they're 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 starting to be spun out of universities and and doing pilots, but they're they're still a little bit away. So in essence, yes, and there probably are technologies you know that Raúl and I don't even know at the moment. But mm -hmm. this is what we can see in the short term future, um, particularly with respect to on the module technology. And I'm going to ask a, a question that's probably 
going to speak to my lack of knowledge of this. What is the lifespan of a solar panel? Are we talking? Is it like a furnace? We got 15 years. Do we have 50 years? Well, you got it pretty close. It's <laughs> typically when the industry started it, it was around 20 years. And right now, a lot of the warranties are up to about 30 years. Oh wow! But okay. The developers are looking at modeling in their in their in their models 35 or even up to 40 years, even in some. Wow. Okay. Like so more than probably more than a when you think of like a homeowner, for instance, more than potentially the expected life of being in a house. You know, like that. That's interesting to me that it's not you don't have to do a replacement cycle within your. No, but I so see the only the only caveat to that would be that. The technology, even in the space of 10 years, has improved so quickly. It, it's, I don't know, we could use the analogy of a smartphone almost, that you may consider replacing it with a, a new spec module right. or, or some of the other componentry because it's, uh, it can produce more energy or electricity or because it can work more seamlessly with your EV charging and, and other business models that are maybe coming down the road as you upgrade to a smart home, for example. Right. Okay. So Raul, Cormac described solar as being somewhat of uh, in an adolescent phase. And I know you've got, you know, for all the other listeners out there, Raul also has another chart where he maps shale on a maturity level from, I think, infancy to adolescence to old or something. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. Home? Is this- <laughs> yeah. Second career, as we like to call it. <laughs> Second career. Where would you put, if, if, if solar's on an adolescence with on that curve, shale, I know each play is different, uh, but but right. where would we put kind of in, in aggregate? Or, or I'm, I'm sensing we're more toward the top, toward that absolutely. retirement home. No, absolutely. You know, um, so to use that, that analogy, you're right. First of all, every play is different than what you have to figure out each play. But increasingly, as we figured out play number six, seven, eight, nine, ten, it becomes clear that there's a, a bunch of the, the tools to figure it out become much better and it happens much faster and it takes fewer wells. Nevertheless, if I would say collectively, kind of where are we? I would say that you know, we went through the early stage, what we call the proving stage, where you know you're not making any money, and then there was an optimization stage. And and in my mind, at the optimization stage for any play, two things happen. Number one, you figure out where's good and where's bad. Remember, shale's like real estate, okay? And either you're in a good spot or you're not in a good spot, and you only find out sort of by getting in there and drilling some wells. And the other thing is, you figure out how to drill and complete it. And that's what a lot of what you're talking about. How do I drill it? How do I frack it? How do I uh, produce it? Getting that recipe down, that happens in this optimization phase. And that border between the optimization and what we call the next phase, which I call standardization, is like graduating from university. Okay. Hey, it's been 22 years and we put a ton of money into you. Now your job is to go out. Okay. And for the next 40 years, you're going to go ahead and, you know, turn it on. Okay. And start making money. And we're out of the optimization phase. We are in that standardization phase. Uh, we've begun our career and we've probably been at it, you know. So we're kind of like a early 30s. I got a lot of work left ahead of me. Most of the growth, a lot of the growth and learning has happened, but I got a lot of work to do that actually makes the money. So to use a sort of very simplistic, you know, professional analysis. Now, the interesting thing to me also is, is there a second career? Pretty soon, I was just talking to somebody about this yesterday, pretty soon there are going to be 100,000 well bores. Now, remember, for those of you that, 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 that may not know, 
that of the oil that's in place, a typical oil field will get somewhere between 35 and 40 percent, 45 percent. Some cases you get as high as 55 or 60, in some cases as low as 20. In all the shale plays, particularly for oil, we're only getting about 9 or 10 percent. So we're leaving 90 percent down there. That's a big prize at somewhat lower cost because it's de-risked and there's already infrastructure. Now, will people get that? I don't know, but that's the big prize in my mind that could give a kind of second wind and make it, you know, very, very cheap, oh, cheaper than it is now. Because as Brianne rightfully points out, almost all of your improvements to productivity and capital efficiency have largely run their course. It's, it's mature in that way. Now, what is happening is slow digitization, the normal kind of gains that every company gets from this. You're getting gains from scaling up uh, and, and fewer companies and, you know, uh, more known processes. So there's still a lot of tinkering going on, but those are resulting in gains of, you know, 2 to 3% a year, not 10, 12, 15% a year. But what I'm hearing from you is that there could be another technology breakthrough that gives that gives access to that 90%. Yeah, you think? Uh, well, okay. it gets access even to another 5%. Well, okay? even to another, another 5 or 10% even. Yeah. yeah, I mean. That's right. And, and that's what they're doing, you know. And, and okay. so, but I got to say, we, we've already been looking for it for, you know, seven years. A while. And uh, occasionally you see articles and I tell all my clients, don't buy it yet. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. we'll know it if it comes out uh, and, and it hasn't happened. We may never happen. So, so this brings me. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Phil. Well, so I, I wanted to, to, to come back somewhat, you know, to, to your point, Roll, there on don't buy it yet. And you're mentioning of Uber earlier. Um, you know, the, the the Barnett shale, which kicked all of the, you know, shale gas and, and then shale oil, you know, application off, you know, what was, you know, widely called the, the 17 year overnight success. Yeah. Because you had the CW Slay and what, 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 the CW Slay was the first well that, that you know pioneered the Barnett, and then it took 17 years for the Barnett to become a household name, which did so, I would argue, in large part because of you know I'll say Aubrey McClendon as a bit of a hype man who got people excited about this new technology, and, and if I think about disruptors, so the Uber role, you know tra- Travis. Kalanick is a bit of a household name. You've got Tesla with Elon Musk as a household name. Amazon with Jeff Bezos as a household name. Who's the hype man for solar? I mean, the, 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 people know Shale as almost a brand name, and, and can you? Know, we, we've felt it in our pocketbooks with gas prices. My, my power bills haven't really gone down. Solar seems to be, even though everybody loves it, it seems to be a bit of a uh, a quieter disruptor. Uh, am I just out of the loop? Let's call it an unsung or? hero, maybe. Can we call it an unsung hero? <laughs> an unsung hero? Maybe. That works for me. <laughs> is, is, is there, I mean, how important is that voice or is solar throwing off so much cash that you don't need somebody who, who is creating, in a sense, the hype that, that Aubrey or Elon have done for their respective disruptors or Travis? The, the person I would still probably use Elon to a to a degree in that it's it's kind of quietened down since he uh, since he took over Solar City with with some of his former partners, but uh, and and you know he he can elevate it to some degree. I think at the moment there's there's probably not a, a standout one person otherwise that that I can 
that I can think of other than I think a lot of the, the quiet success of solar is maybe the the simplicity of it in terms of, of deploying it. In terms of how this is reflected in terms of electricity bills, there's certainly, again, a, a level of maturity or, or fairness, I think, that has to be openly acknowledged. So, for example, when we look at distributed generation systems, so residential or, or rooftop ap- applications, you know, a lot of the early adopters are, or the people who are installing it right now, are the people who can get the lease system or a loan system or have the free cash. Um, you know, for example, we heard a lot in in the United States last year that due to grid disruptions in certain states, due to either natural weather events or in California to do with fires where there was rolling blackouts or brownouts, that it now became more attractive to have maybe solar plus a battery system or maybe just even a battery system on its own. But that's obviously a, a question of equity and fairness. Mm-hmm. Um, the other side of it is is where, you know, a Nextera or a, a utility um, for example, in, in Europe, such as, you know, they talk about the green energy majors now, the Iberdrolas, the Orsteds, the Enels, and they, they, they look at, you know, the easy systems for them are like large scale, big solar farms in Latin America, Europe, United States. And I think it's at the moment, yeah, you could agree that it's quite difficult to see how does this impact my electricity bill. And actually, I might have an adder for it because, you know, there's like a, a mm-hmm. tax that is either recirculated to help pay for whatever incentive schemes may be in place. I think that's the the conundrum for everyone. And the energy system full stop is, you know, outside of doing it yourself by fronting up the money, is how do we want this energy system to to go further? If I look a little bit into kind of the medium term or the longer term, so, you know, five years out or 10 years out, I think when, and Hill, we kind of touched briefly on this last week was, you know, one of the hopes is that you'll have so much distributed systems, um, even even small scale. So lots of solar systems in a neighborhood or in a locality that you can aggregate them into what's maybe known as a virtual power plant. And this is a business model that has been tested with on isolated cases like with HECO in Hawaii, maybe PG&E in the past in in California, and where the utilities can tap the batteries or tell the solar systems don't export at the moment, or with the battery system, we've got peak demand, so please export onto the system and help us not bring online other resources that would be uh, maybe not wanted or, or more expensive. And where these new energy systems are actively participating in the grid system and providing grid services. That's maybe another way whereby it may not impact your monthly bill, but you might get a credit or you might get a a payment sporadically um, for services. And that's some way towards how the grid of the future, it's, it's part of that conversation solar is starting to now enter into as we add energy storage and as the system becomes a little bit more um, complex. One of the reasons why I am so interested in solar, and, and you touched on a few of them, is the scalability of it. I mean, the fact that individual homeowners can actually get involved in it as far as you know, taking ownership of their energy choice and things like that. There's so many unique things about solar that I think really give it an interesting foundation for being a more significant disruptor than, than maybe what on the surface it even looks like right because as we said there's there hasn't been a number that we can point to that say yeah look there's this disruption and i don't know whether or not that 
that number will ever present itself. But the other thing that I think is challenging about solar, when we think about it as a disruptor, though, is I feel like, yes, Aubrey McClendon was a huge part of, of, the, of the messaging around shale. But for an investor, it was pretty simple to see how you can invest in this disruption, right? So this company owns X amount of acreage. All right. I like that there's, you know, there's a percentage likelihood that there might they might find something there. So you could kind of invest in who had exposure, you know, who had the land, et cetera, et cetera. You could say, all right, well, services, service companies, people are going to have to actually do this work so I can invest in service companies. These are the guys that have the expertise or wh however you wanted to play it. Even invest in towns that were around the areas where the land was being developed, right? So all this type of stuff. What about solar? Is it just people who are manufacturing the panels? Because I, I, don't, I don't quite know where my investable themes lie in solar as the disruptor. Yeah, it's a good question. And there, there's a few avenues by for example, either you could, if there are some of those power producers or those utilities that are publicly listed, obviously you could invest in them. And we've seen that with Nextera's share price, for example. We, you could look at towards, so there, there are companies that are using this as a way to transition their business. You could obviously invest in the manufacturers. It's not only just the module players, and most of the module players are actually listed on the Shenzhen Stock Exchange. They've actually delisted from the New York Stock Exchange. But we've seen a few IPOs occur for some of the other suppliers and manufacturers. So these are the steel manufacturers. So you have to put solar panels on, on steel infrastructure. You have to, you need power electronics. This is probably some of the important intelligence or what we call the brains of the operations that are not often talked about because they're not as, uh, as visible. They're kind of behind the scenes. But they're the parts that are going to be the interface and where there's going to be software overlaying it. And these are going to basically either convert the electricity so that it can be exported or work with the battery systems or with the other power loads in your home, in your, in your business, uh, air conditioning, um, uh, your heating, your uh, EV charging systems, your smart home loads. Uh, and they're available end phase solar edge there's, there's lots that are on the stock mar markets and then thereafter i think it's the back to the disruptors on the on the themes of virtual power plants load management software as a service and this kind of goes back to kind of rose point of some of these businesses are at very early stages and they have a lot of promise and a lot of hope and you can see how they could play out in the system but they're, they're maybe not generating as much uh, cash or they're maybe beneath the surface and they're at, you know, at VC stage and they're yet to be fully, fully commercialized in a big way. Some of them are actually quite old. I tend to be a little bit skeptical uh, of, of some of these ancillary services because uh, of my own experience. In 1992, I worked for an organization called the International Institute for Energy Conservation, and we were all about demand side management, right? Now, you didn't have half the tools that you, that you had now, right? But some of these things have been around for a while, right? I mean, the, the notion that consumers don't really care about energy, they care about light and dishwashing and transportation and all that. And you can make that, you can make a company by delivering those services. That, that was the same idea uh, that we had. And it's just, it's hard and it's hard to scale up. And consumer preferences, you know, uh, kind of sometimes get in the way. So while I like that, 
I, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical that some of those things will ever pan out, you know. And what I do see in terms of investables, I, I think also you have, uh, look, a lot of people are building these solar farms. It, from what I see, Cormac, and tell me this is true, the actual manufacturing of the panels has been kind of subsidized by China often, and it frankly happens at, at much of a loss. Well, somebody's got to get that margin. <clears throat> so my sense would be the people who are buying them and selling the power, particularly in an early stage where there's not a lot of solar or wind out there currently, you should be able to make a bunch of money because the, you know all the other solar plants aren't coming on at the same time yours is. And uh, so is it is it those guys, is it the developers and the runners of those assets, or are those kind of utility return assets, but they're low risk? How do you view that whole risk and reward profile for the people, say, who are taking advantage of low panel prices or falling costs? I, I think you've hit it, has summarized it quite well in that the, the solar modules or the panels have become quite commoditized. I mean, it has concentrated and there are, you know, there's tier one identifiable uh, major players, but the distinguishing factors is, is kind of, it's getting harder and harder, I think. Okay. So you are right that the, either the asset owners or developers who, some of them have a short-term horizon. So they have a like develop it and get in and get out within five years. And I kind of call them like flippers. They, they, they just get rid of the asset <laughs> quite early and they, they claw back their money and then they just recycle it and then they keep moving. And the idea is, you know, the market is moving so quickly in terms of the technology, the maybe the states or the jurisdictions where now solar is, is moving no longer just to set west. Um, it's moving into other jurisdictions and where they kind of have a, an edge. Or it could be that, you know, we, we've done a lot in the United States or in Europe, and now it's time to move into emerging markets like Latin America, like yeah. Brazil, uh, Chile, or uh, big population centers. Hence, maybe a little yeah. bit why Vietnam is coming on. And and I think Hill and Brian were curious about, you know, Africa. Mm-hmm. They're probably the mm-hmm. next play where you could take a bunch of money that you've made in well-paid markets such as uh, United States, Germany. Europe, and where, where there's a lot of people chasing it now. So, you know, your yeah. returns are probably going to lower and recycle that money in higher risk markets and take on board some of those <clears throat> infrastructure funds like Brookfield. There's the bigger there's developers that have maybe a presence and an aptitude like Enel has got, done a lot in Latin America and, and you know, use some of those partners and, and go into those um, jurisdictions, and that's where the next phase of, let's yeah, say, that continued that, high push. That's that's very interesting because, in effect, it's just like it actually like shale, right? Which mm-hmm. is, you get in and you buy, you know, what what looks like goat pasture, and for five hundred bucks, and it turns out if it works, it turns out to be worth twenty. Now you've added the, your 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 value there, and the rest of the running the asset for the next while and developing all those things is in in the standardization phase is not where the money is actually made. It's like you're saying, it's the de-risking. And so getting in there, figuring out the market, getting the big customers, getting a, maybe a guarantee on price, right? And putting it in there uh, for somebody that's, you know, uh, where solar's not well penetrated. And so finding these next new markets and developing the early stage assets because you've got risk and because you have your pioneer, mm-hmm. then you know, that's where the money, that, that's where the margin is. And in some ways, that's very consistent with what we've seen uh, uh, on shale. Uh, one of the interesting things for shale is that because it's a global market with a single price, it got to be such that 
once the once the production from all these areas had sort of ruined the the global market, it became impossible to go to a new area. Okay. Because even if, if there was de-risking to be had, the prize was not as big. And one of the interesting things about power markets, from my experience, is the regionalization, right? The very strong regionalization and the, the oversupply potentially that affects and is lowering your returns in the old market doesn't apply to the new market. So there's constantly new fresh fields uh, for you to go to. That's an interesting thought. I think what's really interesting about it as well, though, is that when you think of Shale, and it was interesting that you used the word flipping because that I, I'm like you. Well, the first thing that came to mind was that is the classic word that anybody described the the shale companies. They were land flippers, right? And and a few of them have tried to develop to be operators and producers. But let's be honest, that's that's where the you know it hasn't necessarily been a perfect world. So the idea of flipping. But I think what's interesting about solar is when we think of uh, the issue with shale was that. The technology proved it couldn't really be exported because it was also so reliant upon the resource base, right? And and, and then the, the way that then you had to have the expertise in, in horizontal drilling. And there was a lot of expertise in trying to export it to other regions globally, and it, and it just didn't really work, right? Um, for a lot of reasons. Solar, you don't have that same, or correct me if I'm wrong here, Cormac, you don't have those same limitations with respect to exporting technology. There should be able to be a seamless exportation of technology, right? Because but not of regulation, right? But not of regulation. Okay, right. Okay. All right. Is that the differentiator, McCormick, between, you know, going here and going to Vietnam and going to, you know, Bangladesh and, and Zaire? Well, I can't say Zaire anymore, but, you know, <laughs> Botswana. Yeah, I, 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 definitely that's one of the things is that, yes, the technology doesn't change too much per, per geography or jurisdiction. But you're exactly right. The either the access to finance, the um, obviously you have to the local players how the grid is set up, how you're going to export, get your grid connection, the regulatory uh, framework, what are the power prices that you could get, and and even then within you know some of them are re, you know the word regime like it, it might change quite quickly. Like you could have been saying you're going to invest in Myanmar this year and. I don't think much is going to be going on in the short term. So there is an element of of, of risk uh, associated with that. And I think one of the other aspects, and maybe that connects to kind of two, is then is, okay, we talk about the green energy majors, but then on, on in parallel, there's this a lot of noise about the BPs or the Shells or uh, Equinors and them moving into or expanding into renewables. And they may become some of these off takers of these large portfolios, not only in the mature markets of Europe, uh, North America, but even in the those those players, those developers that are willing to, you know, be early movers into Africa, Southeast Asia, and particularly, you know, where there's high population growth, you know, a young grid by way of like that it's still growing. And I think Hill, you touched on this, like, will some of these markets? How might the grid evolve and might they be like analogous to skipping straight to, to smartphone and, and using mm -hmm. how might the, like I kind of think about it, how might the energy system develop in some of these. I think that's where, that's where the intrigue is and where, you know, certainly as we go look, you know, into the long term, without a doubt, solar will have big opportunities in these markets, but that's not without its challenges. Like, one of the holy grails is obviously India, where there's there's huge opportunity, but it's almost like state by state. There's challenges and there's even country challenges between neighbors. 
that even make it hard to maybe get some of this standardized product that we we kind of say it, it's easy to deploy and quick but you know so there's so much of it concentrated in one one area by way of china that it's not as simple and one of the other parts and why we go back to why it's in its middle or you know at maybe adolescent stages it has to reach scale and maybe there needs to be some manufacturing spread out not just only in the areas where such as china where it's allowed tremendous um cost decreases with scale but also allow us to continue to expand in the United States and in other areas as it kind of further grows. One of the keys when you're thinking about that we've had in international oil and gas is this huge risk issue because once once you're in a particular location and you find something, you develop it, all of a sudden the government holds all the cards. Okay, because mm-hmm. what are you gonna you're gonna leave the, the oil's there and you can't not get it out there. Now you could be somewhere else and then export globally. And so I'm and you know, it's kind of curious to, to, to me as we start to move into global situations, whether you're gonna somebody's gonna go to the trouble to build the solar farm, get it, get it operated, build a transmission network, maybe build batteries, and then you know what? Government's going to come back and say, yeah, we kind of want you to lower the price. We kind of want you to subsidize this. We kind of want you to do this, this, and use local content. A lot of the same issues that have bedeviled uh, some of the oil companies because uh, you can't export your electricity to somewhere else, right, uh, very well. And, uh, and in a lot of ways, your panels are where the sun is shining, right, <laughs> in the country. It's, hard, it's, it's an asset that's hard to move, unlike manufacturing, which is – a little bit lighter and we'll take up and we'll go somewhere else or open up another factory here. You don't have as much choice once you're embedded in the in the structure with a big asset. Well, uh, so as maybe a way to, to kind of wrap this up, um, and I hope we can do this uh, again because this is, uh, has been, a, at least for me, a really interesting uh, conversation that, that we've talked about adolescence and maturity and whatnot. And, and I'm kind of thinking of, you know, that adolescents seek advice from, from uh, others or should seek advice from <laughs> from their seniors. Uh, is there any advice role that that if you were the voice of a mature shale and Cormac, <laughs> the voice of an immature solar? Do you have any question? Do you have a single question for, for uh, shale as to to what 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 they would uh, you know what's the advice to hand down and Raul, if unprompted? What what's the What's the advice to the young whippersnapper that, that you would give, uh, <laughs> having learned from shale over the past, you know, 10, 20 years? I, I actually have one. I thought about it when you were describing at the beginning, um, when Raul was saying about a little bit about the life cycle and, and where shale is at. And I think about it even in other industries, um, even in Apple, where they said you have to eventually cannibalize yourself. Mm-hmm. And one of the issues that solar will face someday if it continues on this growth path is it will be like giving away maybe free electrons or it'll be producing so much in one area that there'll be depressed markets for a period of time in the day, maybe not all the time. And so lessons from from shale where it was almost, you're so successful that it's kind of your undoing. And, and what would be some of the lessons you could learn from that or help prevent that risk? Any, any thoughts, Raul? Well, it's interesting you said that because my answer was going to be right around this is is about cannibal undermining your own your own success. Solar has so much potential because it's still small, right? And, and it ought to be it ought to be enormous. So in my mind, the key would be figuring out 
or, or focusing the effort as much on transmissibility between grids mm-hmm. uh, as you can, and on um, and on figuring out the intermittency. Uh, I know that's a big focus already, but that that's the deal. Is you have a a, a, a good technology. And frankly, it's not making much money now. At some point, it's also going to be too big to subsidize. Per unit, you know, at least in, in a lot of places, it gets a big subsidy. But those contracts will run out, and 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 those things will happen, and you'll you'll be mature. And you know, in my mind, the way to 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 prevent that is to be able to go around the clock and beat you know uh, both coal and gas. And that's the key. It, it, if you just focus on solar, so that integration with for intermittency uh, and the a way to avoid cannibalization, because I, I agree, people are going to get burned pretty badly if you're the 12th solar project in an area. Right now in West Texas, it's, it's actually pretty bad, right? People look at it for their oil resources, but it's the solar is in great abundance. And uh, I've talked to investors and they say, eh, it's only a tax play, right? So you got to figure out a way to get beyond a, a, a tax play uh, by not cannibalizing. All right. Let's see. Uh Seems like a good place to leave it. I, and I have to indulge us here. Our last podcast we did on solar was with Sam, uh, where we talked about uh, David Bowie and at length in the beginning. Uh, and David Bowie's kind of career problems seemed to be that that he was obsessed with this glam image of being you know more popular than popular. And each time he got there, he couldn't handle it and had to shrink back and then inevitably he would climb back, right? And so that seems to be in some senses what's happening with, with these disruptive technologies as well, that, that each is becoming so disruptive that they are, you know, hurting themselves. So. Hill should really moonlight as a music anthology or something. <laughs> I like it. I like it. I feel like I feel like Hill can solve all the world's problems and, and relate it right back to some quality music. It's good. <laughs> Maybe this this will be your second career. There you go. <laughs> you we were go. talking about the second career for Shale. Well, Hill, you're you're never headed for a retirement home. You've got a whole <laughs> life cycle ahead of you. We'll see. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Raul and Cormac, for joining us today. Really enjoyed it. And um, as you can see by the length of this podcast, there's plenty to talk about. So there'll probably be a, a another round of a Cormac Raul show soon to come because I think we touched on some very interesting, highly investable themes here. So that was great. Thank you so much to both of you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. And until next time, listeners. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.